That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Bob Ryan, and my dilemma is that in a 50-year marriage, we have never solved a very central issue, which is I am a Windows shut person, and she is a Windows open person. And this has been a source of great debate low these many years and it remains irresolvable. So first of all, I plan to ask Bob how he has been married for 50 years and what the secret is. And here I discover a crack already in the veneer of this lifelong love romance. Uh, and of course, we've all been here before. The window open, the window closed debate uh, and the air conditioning on, the fan on, etc. Now, the best response I have to something that has plagued a relationship for 50 years is that you're probably not going to fix this. If you've tried everything you've ever thought of over the last half century and nothing has pleased you both, then chances are someone will always be slightly unhappy when it comes to the window situation. That being said, the best fix I can think of for the open window, closed window, air versus no air debate is to at least offer up the artificial alternative of a fan placed on the side of the bed for the person who is wishing for a breath of air or a a breeze at night. Now, it's not going to replicate the freshness of the outside world, which is perhaps what Bob Ryan's wife is looking for. But at the very least, it will replicate the idea of a breeze in her face and only on the side of the bed that she's on, thereby allowing him to keep the window closed and be air-free on his side. It's not a perfect fix. I'll give you that much. And sometimes the commission strikes out on these fixes, but it's the best I can offer you. And the good news is you've still made it 50 years despite this terrible raging debate. So I think you kids have a future. The commish has spoken. Don't forget to check out Katie Nolan's podcast, Sports. In the most recent episode, Katie discusses Aaron Rodgers' lack of chugging talent, the Stanley Cup final, a traffic jam at Mount Everest, and whether or not she'd trade Liverpool's chance to win the Champions League for a Premier League title. Download and subscribe to Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. This week's guest is legendary sports writer Bob Ryan, who spent 44 years as a Boston Globe reporter and columnist, now emeritus. He's still an around-the-horn panelist, author of 13 books, host of the on-and-off-again Bob Ryan's Boston podcast, a four-time National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association National Sports Writer of the Year, college basketball writers and New England Basketball Hall of Fame, 2000 Associated Press National Sports Writer of the Year, and can still be heard regularly on local Boston radio on The Levitard Show with Stugatz and other national shows. I love this conversation with Bob. I've competed against him on Around the Horn, but uh, really getting to know him and, and what makes him tick was really fascinating. Uh, he generally passes on the commissioner nickname to me without too much of a fight, talks about how to ingratiate yourself to a staff or a bunch of players on a beat, why former Celtics coach Tom Heinsohn turned on him and how they reconciled it. Some of the biggest changes to covering sports over the course of his lifetime, uh, including no longer, uh, as far as he knows, beat reporters sharing beers with the players every night after games. Uh, the radio hit that he most regrets and why he wants to change the Constitution. Yes, all of that is in this great interview with Bob Ryan. Check it out. Well, that's what she said. So happy to welcome in Bob Ryan, who I occasionally get to sit across uh, well, technically, it's really just across the country from staring at his face in a screen, as he does with me on Around the Horn. But I- I'm so excited to get to know him a little better. And, Bob, you know, part of this podcast is really going all the way back. And, uh, you know, with all due respect, I believe we might be going the farthest back of any of my guests ever yet. Uh, in order to get back to your childhood, you are the uh, the most veteran of, of my guests so far, I believe. Um, right. So let's start. Let's start way back uh, in the 40s and 50s. What kind of kid were you? Uh, precocious in, in a couple of ways. Uh, one, uh, uh, I had a, a real ex- ex- um, extreme exposure to sports. My father was involved in sports, and I don't ever remember a time, and this is not hyperbole, I do not ever remember a time when we weren't, when we weren't at a game, going to a game, or getting ready to go to a game. That's A, and B, I love to read. And uh, I was, uh, uh, so I combined the two. Uh, uh, I, I love to play sports. I love to follow sports. 
and I love to read about sports so much so that, say, when uh, if my father were to take me to a, a high school basketball game, which he did uh, very frequently uh, on Friday nights in my hometown of Trenton, New Jersey, the Trenton Catholic was big, uh, big power in the state of New Jersey at the time. Uh, we would go to the game on Friday night, but I couldn't wait till Saturday morning to pick up the morning Trentonian to read <laughs> about the game because until I read about the game, it was really not validated or authenticated in my mind. What sports did you play? Uh, baseball, basketball, I mean, all the conventional stuff, touch football. We were totally seasonal, totally seasonal. We played touch football in the, in the uh, fall. We played uh, basketball uh, quite uh, uh, all year round, and we played baseball. And we had all the various kids' games uh, that, that uh, people would play in the 50s. Uh, uh, Ring Alivio was big. And, um, so, uh, and then we, we shot marbles. Uh, we definitely did that. Uh, and uh, so that, that and we had a play called Ringy, which was a, a hide-and-seek game. So did you go on to play any of those sports in high school? I played um, – the one I was able to play, I was a good Little League baseball player, but I was unable to make the transition to the 90-foot diamond in that I was A, slow, and B, had a weak arm. So that was the end of my, uh, my baseball career. But I did play basketball, and I continued to play basketball, which I loved. And I did play through prep school, and I did, uh, uh, you know, wind up having a very conventional um, career in terms of uh, start as a freshman, start as a JV, come off the bench as a junior, and start as a senior. So, yes, I did have a basketball career. Yeah, worked your way up. You mentioned your dad always being around sports. Did he work in sports, or just that was how he spent no, his No, he worked time? in sports, uh, various capacities. He was a combination of a PR guy, a promoter, a, um, a marketer, before the term was probably popularized for sports, uh, in both minor league baseball, uh, local sports, and, uh, and for one very interesting two-year period when I was six to eight years old, he was the assistant athletic director at Villanova, which is what got me into big-time college sports. We were going to many college football games, and, and then every weekend in the, in the winter, for those two winters, uh, we would go down to Philadelphia to a doubleheader at either the Palestra or at Convention Hall. So I was uh, immersed in college sports at that age. Um, what about your mother? Did she work? My mother was a secretary, a very, very a good one, and uh, she worked, uh, and my father died when I was 11, so she was definitely working after that. But she was working all the way through, and uh, that she was a secretary. And uh, uh, she, she came from the era... Uh, Growing up in the in the 30s, when uh, uh, there was no opportunities for women of, of who did not have means, so when she graduated from high school, her uh, options were uh, secretary or secretary, uh, as was the case with her sister, my aunt, who graduated from high school at age 16 and mm-hmm. then had nowhere to go uh, except uh, into the secretarial pool, and uh, yeah, that 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 was the fate for you know bright women who did not have means in in those days. Yeah. So you went on to Lawrenceville, which is a boarding school, but also has residents that that go as a day as day participants. Um, what was that experience like as someone who uh, grew up in an area that occasionally uh, people would end up at those East Coast boarding schools? It feels very hoity-toity. Very I old came school. from a uh, parochial school background, uh, uh, inner city Trenton, New Jersey, St. Joseph's School. I was the number one kid in that class for eight years. I, and I go to Lawrenceville, and now uh, it's a whole other academic world. It's a whole other social world. The first person that I encountered, the first human being with whom I came in contact, uh, was named Sandy Orbach, and his, he was the heir, uh, ultimate heir to a uh, department store uh, uh, firm that people knew in New York at the time, very big. Uh, and he was a, a, a throwaway child. You know, he was like the, the ex-son of the ex-wife, uh, and, uh, with the with the ex husband, uh, and he was sent to boarding school, and then in the summer sent for eight week summer camp, and he was the throwaway child of of a, the poor little rich kid, if there ever was one. That's the first person I met, and he never made it through the school. I have no idea what ever happened to him. But uh, uh, you're meeting a whole other different social class, no question. And then the academic uh, rigors uh, uh, were very humbling. But it turned out to be a a transformative experience without which I never would have gotten where I am today or where I got to be. No way. It it, it was the the opportunity there, uh, the opportunities there uh, were uh, so uh, uh, enormous. uh, And the extracurricular act, uh, not to mention, uh, you know, the, the classroom stuff that was stimulating and, uh, it, it was it was just a, a fantastic experience, and, and I, I still have a very strong residual loyalty to the school. 
when you were at Lawrenceville and, and even maybe before that, did you already know you wanted to work in sports? Had you already decided this isn't just something I love, this is something you can do for a living? Well, I knew that I had one skill above all, which was words and, and writing. So it was either going to be broadcasting or writing. I did love, I did uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, was fascinated by play-by-play. And I actually did get to do that in college. I did four years of basketball play-by-play in college when, at Boston College. But, but uh, uh, I knew I had an affinity for writing. I, I wrote my first thing when I was about 11 years old. Uh, I wrote myself a column called The Sportster. And, and basically it was about the, uh, my uh, observations on the parochial school basketball league that I was playing in, plus some national observations. I remember uh, writing about the Celtics and, uh, with, with Bob Cousy. And uh, uh, I wish I had a copy of that. It was fun. But the audience, the, the circulation was one. That was, that, was a person, that was for me. But I had that for many, many years. I, and some move or other, it got lost. Too bad. But that I, but I was, and then I got to Lawrenceville, and I immediately got an opportunity to write formally, and I wound up uh, writing uh, what we call the lower school paper, and then I wrote for the school paper for three years. I became the sports editor, and and uh, that was, and it was a weekly. So I had an opportunity that the normal high school student doesn't have because the normal high school paper is lucky if it comes out four times a year, but at, at a school such as Lawrenceville, it's a weekly, and that gave me a heads up, a real head start uh, compared to many other people. So you end up a history major at Boston College. Why that major, and, and what did you immediately think you would follow that with uh, exiting college? The um, uh, college itself was a means to an end, uh, and the end was society dictates you must have that, that sheepskin. That, that, that's it. Uh, my true education came in prep school. I, if I had never said another second in college in a classroom, I would have been the same educated person I was uh, when I emerged from it four years later, which is not a knock on BC, but a testimony to what Lawrenceville was all about. Uh, so I started out majoring in English. I thought that made sense. But I found out uh, as we got ready for the second, you know, the sophomore year, that uh, the electives in English weren't very enticing. I didn't need Chaucer. <laughs> I really wasn't interested in Chaucer right. uh, or many other things. So I searched for a, a different major, and history made perfect sense in that it's all about reading and writing, and I love history. So I should have been a history major to start with. I wasn't going to use it uh, directly. I just needed to get out of college. And, and, you know, what I really wanted to do was, you know, become a – I decided to be a newspaper writer, particularly, although I did have a, other, a, a sports writer, I'll put it that way, because I have to talk about Sports Illustrated along the way. And, and so um, I, I, went on, I worked on a school paper, and I was on, worked on a radio station, and, and, and I, I met a woman the, sec, the second or third day. I, we have a debate over that. Uh, when I was there, who uh, became my girlfriend and has been my wife uh, now for 50 years, and uh, so um, it, it was about it was about that, and it was about uh, going to basketball games and meeting Bob Cousy and and going to practice every day and getting my PhD in basketball. So I always say I majored in basketball and I minored in snack bar sitting, and that's basically <laughs> that was my college career. <laughs> so uh, the very first job after Boston College is what? Uh, I became a, I got a, lucked in. Well, I did luck into uh, an opportunity for an interview for a summer internship at the Boston Globe. Now, most internships, as I know you know, are generally for undergraduates. But I and I had graduated. I was about to graduate, as I should say. I was a senior when when this opportunity came. But it was a break because my roommate Reed Oslin, uh, who was the uh, official aide to the sports information director Eddie Miller. Uh, uh, turned down this opportunity uh, for this interview because he really wasn't—he knew he wasn't going to go into journalism. Uh, and uh, they said, "Well, we got this other guy." I was also working in the sports information, uh, uh, but unofficially. But I, I did do things for them, and they recommended me uh, for this opportunity uh, interview at the Globe, and, and I went and, and did it. And there were four editors I remember interviewing me, and um, I had some clippings. I had the stuff to show them. And about three weeks later, I was notified that I was accepted. I was a summer intern with the Boston Globe. And you arrived on the same day as Peter Gammons, yes? June 10th, 1968. I walk <laughs> in, and uh, uh, there I met this kid from uh, North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina, and Groton, a fellow preppy. Yep. And, uh, and we hit it off immediately on several levels, particularly our, our immediate uh, love, of ba- our, our, our love of baseball. Uh, and, uh, but when I found out he was a Tar Heel, we had lots of hoop talk. And um, we've been friends ever since. Love that. That's so crazy uh, that that was on the exact same day. Um, so you're you're there working as an intern, a sports intern. Um, did you have a mid a, a, a mid range gig between when that vacancy opened up on the Celtics beat? Uh, yes. Were you assigned oh, small the, small? The, 
yeah, I'm sorry. The chronology is as follows. I was a summer intern, and I was concurrently I had gotten into the Army Reserves. This was the height of Vietnam, 1968. And one day, and, and I was going to be, I was going to get drafted uh, as late as March. And um, one day, uh, I was we were minding my own business and sitting in the dorm, and uh, and uh, somebody came into the dorm, and uh, this is like, make this stuff up. You can't make these things up. Uh, is yelling out. He yells out, anybody's interested, there's an opening in an Army unit in Brockton. And I happen to have a car available uh, that second semester of my senior year. I jumped into that car, and I drove down to Brockton, Mass., and I signed up, just mm. like that. So now I'm in the Army Reserves. Well, I have to go, you know, you have to do your active duty. And my active duty was scheduled for October, the end of October. So I, I said to the Globe, as the summer was ending, is, is it possible I can stick around in some capacity until I go and do my active duty? And they said yes. So I was an office boy, literally uh, five days a week, who covered football on uh, when high school football season came. I covered the college high school football on Saturdays and also Sunday because the local Catholic league played on Sunday, and at twenty dollars a shot, and that was good. So uh, I did that for two months, and then I went into my active duty in October of '68, and I lucked out because. Uh, uh, not only did I only have to do the bare minimum, but 120 days of active duty, it overlapped Christmas vacation, which counted. <laughs> so I came home for about eight or ten days, and, and um, uh, it counted toward, this, toward the time. So I finally got out in February, came back to the Globe, and they rehired me as an office boy with a verbal promise, not in writing. I don't know why they couldn't put it in writing. Uh, I would get the next opening on the staff. And therefore, uh, I, and so I was an office boy Monday through Friday for the Globe, uh, I did a little writing in the summer, but not much, until October. And I was sitting around one day in October, and Fran Rosa, who was the morning sports editor, we had two separate newspapers then, the Morning Globe and the Evening Globe, and each had separate staffs and separate uh, editors. And Fran Rosa came over and said, uh, you probably thought I forgot about, about you, but uh, you're going to be on the staff now. A couple of things had gone on, and, and there was an opening created. And, oh, by the way, you're going to cover the Celtics on Friday night. Hmm. Oh, really? Well, I hadn't. Uh, seen an exhibition. I hadn't met anybody. I hadn't, they had a new coach, Tom Heinsohn, never met him. You know, I didn't know anything. I mean, I knew how to cover a basketball, I thought, but this is getting thrown into the deep end of the pool with, with weights on your ankles uh, <laughs> to, to learn how to cover a team. I never, I did, and that's how I started covering the Celtics. I covered that opening night, and they, they lost to the uh, Cincinnati Royals. Bob Cousy's first game as coach of the Royals, that was good for me because I had somebody I knew how to talk to because I knew Cousy. Cousy and I had known each other now for four years. And, um, I remember uh, Sarah sitting uh, and being in the locker room after the game in the in the Royals locker room, and I'm thinking um, I got a notebook and I'm saying, "Oh my God, I'm talking to Oscar Robertson." <laughs> I mean, that's I was, that's the way I thought. I was in awe of this. So, um, and I blew the deadline. By the way, my first deadline. I, I was a little too slow. Uh, I blew the first edition deadline. Oh, wow! And you know that never happened again. Uh, but they they had they took pity on the kid. They knew the circumstances back at the desk. Anyway, that's how I got started covering the Celtics. Well, you became a fixture on the Celtics beat, uh, according to the uh, the internet, which never lies. You were referred to occasionally as the commissioner by colleagues. Is that true? That was a nickname that I acquired over the years. Yes, it was very flattering. Well, I'm a little concerned because that's my nickname, and now we have to battle over who's the actual <laughs> commissioner. Are you willing to give it up at this point? Is it still is it still a part of? Yeah, your I, I'm. I'm. Willing, I think so. I mean, okay. uh, I'm. I'm. Uh, you know, I'm on the. The back, uh, not only am I not I'm in the back nine, I'm in the clubhouse, uh, you know, on the 18th hole. So, <laughs> having a, so having uh, an Arnold Palmer. I can give it up. <laughs> okay. I pre- that way we don't have to fight. It, it just seems like it's more <laughs> civil this way. Um, but you would, you became so close, you know, you had nicknames, you would go out to dinner with the team even. What was your secret? So let's say someone is listening now, they're just taking over a beat. And, and times are certainly different now. But what was your secret for ingratiating yourself to the players and coaches? I think that um, sheer knowledge and, and, and uh, of the game, and uh, general enthusiasm. And, you know, I didn't know, if I, I knew all, all the stuff that you'd want to know about. You know, I knew who these guys were, what their colleges was, what, town, what their hometown was. I was able to start up conversations maybe about high school, stuff like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I just we felt relaxed and, and comfortable with them, but they made it easy, too. I mean, the veterans were were tremendous. John Havlicek, Sat Sanders, Don Nelson, etc. Uh, they were the veterans on the team, and they, and they were, were very welcoming. And Tom Heinsohn, uh, the coach, 
who was a rookie himself. We were both rookies. He had never coached a damn day of anything in his whole life. And he was learning his job, uh, and I was learning my job, and, and, I, and I certainly needed his uh, you know, input. And I think he recognized that it would be good to have a good relationship with the person who represented the most important media outlet in all of New England, which the Boston Globe was. So there was no television, uh, local television interest, no local radio that mattered, no, inter- no in- outsiding interferences. Uh, newspapers were king, and, and, and nothing else mattered. And uh, the Globe was by far the most important paper in New England, so uh, I was representing the Globe, and and, and he and I, uh, you know, had a good relationship in the beginning. I was going to say, you mentioned Tom Heisen. So in his book, Give Him the Hook, he was critical of you. He said you thought of yourself as a member of the family, that you had a big ego about yourself, and that you started trying to coach the team through your beat stories. Um, What went wrong if, if it started out well? What went wrong, in my my view, my view, you know, acknowledging that he was, we don't, he will always have a different view, is that I was very close to the players, and I was reflecting more and more their viewpoint on things rather than his, and there was a, and there was different viewpoints on things, and um, uh, I, he was, you can understandably resentful of of that, as if he perceived that to be the case. He thought that he had done his due diligence to re- reel me into his orbit. We used to have many uh, uh, conversations and uh, coffee shops and stuff, you know. I mean, um, and, and we got along great at first. And but then by about the third or fourth year, uh, some some technical, you know, some issues arose, and I and I made a value judgment. I mean, a professional judgment that the players were right and, and he was wrong, and uh, or that I was more reflective of their viewpoint. And obviously he didn't like that. And so that was the beginning of, of what would eventually become, uh, you know, a pretty frosty thing by 1976. Let me just say this. Uh, it did end uh, when I got off the beat in 76, in part because I didn't want a year of fighting with him. It wasn't going to serve anybody's purpose, especially the readers. That um, um, within two years, we, we patched it up at a social gathering and have remained very friendly and compatible uh, over the remaining, uh, you know, f- ensuing 42 years. And I am the proud owner of a Tom Heinsohn painting in my living room. You may or may not know that he's an accomplished painter. And uh, uh, so we get along fine. And he's done my podcast uh, as recently as last September. And uh, it, it all worked out in the long run. But it was rocky at, uh, for a few a while there in the 70s. Trust me. Yeah. Um, Dennis Johnson is another person who would uh, 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 apparently get annoyed with you, go to the press table, tell you to stop sideline coaching, you know, keep it down. So describe to me what Bob Ryan was like on the sidelines of those Celtics games. Well, you have to understand, that's all Dennis. And really, the late Dennis Johnson, who I'm very fond of, uh, was very fond of. That was exaggeration. Really, that was that was a joke. Uh, he did once, supposedly, Shaughnessy, Dan Shaughnessy loves, he loves some of these Bob Ryan stories, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I, I question the authenticity of, but uh, one of them uh, that he tells, that he likes to tell is that um, uh, the DJ drove, w- dribbled up the court by and said something to me about keep it down or something's words in that effect, you know, it was kind of, it was a joke, seriously. Uh, I did not, uh, no, I, I, it was just a joke. Uh, no, I was very exuberant and very boisterous on the sideline, w- w- talking to people on the sideline. Now, not, not, now, I did have conversations with referees. I'll admit to that, because uh, I knew them. And, 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 there were, uh, <laughs> and I did one night uh, hold up a, a sign to Jack Madden. Uh, uh, you know, I read a, a hint, wrote out, a, printed out something, and it said, please call one loose ball foul on Moses. Wow, and when he did, you know, he gave me a wink, you know. So you know that 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 was a that was a gratifying moment, and it did, and it and it is true that I I mentioned this in my book that Richie Powers uh, did yell at me, uh, and we were friends, literally friends. But here's what happened: this is the old days. You have to understand the, the building wasn't full at all. And this is when this before the Celtics became the Celtics as you know them now, and there was an incident when um, he called a foul on on a, a Celtic. And then there was a timeout before the free throws were. Someone called timeout before the free throws. So when they resumed play, somebody went to the line. And I thought it had been a new non-shooting foul. And I, not to Richie, I said on the sideline, he wasn't shooting, you know, like that. And you could hear it because the building was so <laughs> quiet. And he, he comes over and says, you shut your mouth or have you thrown out of here. <laughs> wow. That was and. He was a fun. He was. A, we would believe me. Richie and I were friendly, 
but uh, that was uh, that was Richie. I love Richie. So, but that's the old NBA. That NBA doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I was going to say it feels very different. It, it feels certainly like as a as a member of the media, as a beat writer, you wouldn't be talking to officials. As I read, the officials would sometimes come over and even tell you what the call was, even though yes. that was not necessary. And the relationships are, are different now. There's certainly beat reporters that are close with the athletes and coaches they cover, but um. Did you notice even over the course of your own time covering the team the, uh, the significant changes? Yeah, well, first of all, I was on a beat three different times. And I left voluntarily after the 75-76 season because I was, uh, I wouldn't say burnt out, but because we didn't know that phrase, but I was emotionally, uh, I realized I was, I was probably too close to the whole thing. The Heinsohn thing was bothering me. I didn't want to have a year of fighting with him. I needed to get away. I remember needing, I remember coming home after the 1975 finals between the, the Bullets and the Warriors uh, and saying to my wife, I, I can't believe I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I wasn't even 30 years old yet. Uh, I need a vacation. I, mm. I, and, and we took off, and I, I took a week, and we went off on vacation. Uh, and uh, I, I put so much – Sarah, I put so much into it. I did. I, I, I put so much into it. And, and I kind of wore myself out by uh, – and so – I promised myself when I came back to the beat in 78 after being off two years, I wouldn't get as emotionally close again. So what happens? The most important player who ever walked into my life walked into my life, Larry Joe Bird. And, and that was a whole other experience of, of you know, covering that team with him and, and Mikhail and Parrish and DJ and so forth. And, uh, uh, I, but I, I wasn't as close to those guys as I was to that first group, to Havlicek and Silas and Nelson and Cowens and Westfall and those people. I wasn't as close to them. But I, was, but I got, you know, friendly with Larry, but not that the way I was friendly with Silas, particularly, and oh my God, I can talk about Paul Silas forever. <laughs> and I was, you know, I had very strong feelings, of personal feelings about Paul Silas, and I still do. Uh, you know, Larry was, it was, it was very strong, but different. And I wasn't, uh, I, I, I was able to control my, emotions a little bit better uh, the second time and then indeed the third time there were three times but yes it changed so I, I i but the thing was changing the biggest look the two biggest changes in the history of the nba uh, in terms of the social contact uh, we had were a charter flights because until the pistons started chartering regularly in the mid 80s uh, still nobody was chartering anywhere uh, the, the Knicks were the only team that ever charted when I started, and, and, and that wasn't all the time. And then uh, charter flights, which meant you no longer were having the complete socialization with them that you always had, and which meant you met at the airport, you, you, you flew with them, you rode on the bus to the hotel the next day at the shoot-around, you rode to practice, you rode back to practice from practice, you rode to the game with them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that ceased. And secondly, the Chicago Bulls who the way that they were treated as rock stars, the way that they were walled off with the new practice facility, the way uh, pra closed practices became the norm when they were never the norm in the old NBA, and they changed socialization forever in the NBA. Those two things, charter flights and the Chicago Bulls. Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. If you run a business or you're in charge of hiring, you know hiring can be very challenging. But there's one place you can go where it's simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience to invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. You mentioned taking the break, and I would call you a front runner for returning shortly thereafter to cover the successful run uh, of Bird and otherwise. But you actually left the year after they won the title, right? That was when you first stepped away and left Shaughnessy and Jackie McMullen in charge? That's you know, first. It was uh, it was John Powers. No, John Powers was succeeded me directly, and he covered the team for seventy six, seventy seven, seventy seven, seventy eight. Yes, uh, I did. I walked away from a title. Uh, the last words I exchanged with Tom Heinsohn, which we had not spoken. We had we got into a real spat during the finals, 
I mean, we. He chose to make us get into a real spat during the finals, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and uh, in which I stopped talking to him. You realize, here's one. You want, here's, the, here's how different the world was. During the 1976 NBA Finals, when we went to Phoenix, I did not stay at the hotel with the team. I stayed at Paul Westfall's house. Wow. And then I, I drove over to the games. My, uh, and I can yeah. well remember a day, uh, at an off day, when, uh, you know, it, the practice, because with the time difference uh, for me, I had to write early. So we come back from the practice, which is about 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and go out to Paul's pool. And he was there with Alvin Adams and, Eric <laughs> and Keith Erickson. And, oh, by the way, the guy who was the 13th member of the 12-man team, the guy left off the roster for the playoffs, Pat Riley. And uh, and having you know having a good old time at the pool. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I I wasn't so actually I, and I flew when when the teams flew back to Boston, I flew with them rather than the Celtics. Uh, it was just a different world. So anyway, we were talking about uh, uh, oh, oh uh, coming off the beat in '76. So yeah, so finally when they win the they win it in Game Six in Phoenix, and I went up to Tommy. He was holding a bottle of champagne. I said. Um, Congratulations," he said. "Thank you, and that's the last time we spoke for two years until we wound up having a circumstance where we were able to hash it out a little bit, and uh, the rest is pleasant history for the last forty-three years." Right, but then you did it again in eighty-two. Yeah. So that's that's a short stretch to get back on the beat, and then no, I say, did it. You know what? Be. I, I did it. Here's, I came back in seventy-eight. Here's why. Um, I came. Powers was leaving. I, I don't know. He was the, the beat. And they were going to give it to Steve Morantz, and, and, and it's the only time I ever bigfooted anybody. They made this big trade with, with the, uh, you know, the, the, the Clippers. It turns out it was a franchise swap, but that's a story for another day. They were going to get Tiny Archibald, Billy Knight, and Marvin Barnes. And I'm, I'm on vacation in, in uh, New Jersey and at the beach, and this is the old days. I write a letter to the sports editor from, home, from the beach saying, don't do anything with the beat until you talk to me, if you don't mind. I'm ready to, I think I'd like to come back. I was excited about the possibility of that team. That's why I came back. And I had two, two years away, and I, I'd done a lot of college, which I loved. It was fine. And, well, and I did a lot of different stuff. But, um, so I came back to the beat. And um, that one year, and that team was a terrible team that was the only team ever uh, covered that had real racial issues. And, um, uh, and then they drafted a kid named Bird. And I uh, and so I was sitting on the doorstep when 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 Larry was a rookie there for and and seventy nine, and, and I, I did that... it for four years, but I got off again. That's another story. But I got <laughs> off, but I was on for four more years. Yeah, you went to do TV, didn't like it, and came back, right? Yeah, TV was not for me. Uh, they yeah. gave me a full opportunity with local television, uh, but it wasn't for me. And um, I, I knew that after a, a, a year, uh, I was a lame duck for five months. Uh, but then um, they had a replacement. Well, here's a kind of funny story. They had a replacement, uh, and, but he was a, he he was in uh, he had a contract that wasn't going to expire until uh, April of '84, and so I had to maintain be remain on the job for five months as a lame duck. And the reason that he couldn't get out of his contract was that he was in such a contentious relationship with his employer that they weren't going to give him one second of satisfaction. Wow. And oh, by the way, he was so good at what he did; they needed what he did. Keith Olbermann. Oh. <laughs> He was wow, Keith Oberman had a contentious relationship with his employer. I know it's hard say. to believe. <laughs> hard to believe. So uh, uh, you, that's, that's he succeeded me at Channel Five in Boston. Yeah, TV was a good thing for him. That's for sure. <laughs> um, you co-authored a book with Larry Bird, and yet you said your relationship with him wasn't quite as close. How how did that come about? Well, I mean, it was it was good, real good. He asked me to do it, and I loved it, and I still consider myself to be a friend of Larry's. Uh, but it wasn't. I, I just, you know, I'm not saying it, it was, wasn't the same. I, I didn't have the same uh, complete, you know, social relationship. I had, I mean, believe me, I, I had a few beers with Larry, don't worry, but, but it was nothing <laughs> like the old days. Trust me, it wasn't every yeah. night like it was in the old days. When I say every night, I'm not kidding you. We'd go on the road, and I would go into the locker room after the game, and I'd say, where to? And they'd mention the spot. And then I would meet up with them every yeah. night. Yeah, and 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 it was a spot. Believe me, in every city, and we'd close it up usually. You know, and what did your uh, wife that's the think way the world this? was in those days. I didn't mentioned- do that to that extent uh, with, uh, with the Celtics uh, the second time around, but there were nights, a couple, yeah. sure, some, and 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 Larry and I had a uh, more of a more of a business relationship. You know, I mean, he was, I uh, he, he 
seemed he definitely appreciated my level of knowledge and enthusiasm and and appreciated it uh, and and I think he differentiated me from most of the from the pack and that was gratifying so I took advantage of that and I liked and and but I I wasn't the same believe me as as it was with you know the, with that first group what did your wife think? You, you mentioned you met your wife in college. Uh, you had now been together for 50 years. What did she think of you spending your nights partying with the Celtics players? <laughs> it seemed like the normal thing. It was, oh, it was, it was, you know, having a few beers. And, sure. and, and yeah, so just the way life was. No, I don't think we think anything of it. Just that must be the way <laughs> it goes. <laughs> uh, what a saint uh, is all I have to say about that. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the other books you've written. Which was the most joyful to write? Um, first of all, there's only a couple that were actually fun to actually write. Right. Writing books is... The best uh, part of is, writing is having written. Uh, right. Uh, the famous Dorothy Parker line, I don't like writing, I like having written. Yep. And I compare it to having a giant term paper hanging over your head every mm-hmm. day of your life mm-hmm. until it's done. Mm-hmm. And the, so they're not fun to write as a rule. And, and the three that I did with people, as you know, collaborative ones, uh, uh, the As Told Twos with John Havlicek, with Bird, and with Cousy, you know, were particularly difficult because now you've got all the, the, the details of, of the transcribing and uh, trying to write in their voice and, and keep it and, and write as much as possible so that it's their writing and not your writing, but you do need to smooth it out and, and transitions. And, you know, those are hard, uh, I think, very hard. Um, we did a book. Terry Pluto got me involved in a book called 48 Minutes. And I uh, give him all the credit. Uh, this all started, there's a book, there was a book uh, written by Daniel Okrent called Nine Innings. And it was the examination of a Brewers-Orioles game circa 1983 or 4, and which he uh, went pitch by pitch, nine innings, and it included extensive background on, on the major participants, et cetera, et cetera. But it was ex- exploration of a baseball game from start to finish. And Terry comes to me in the fall of 1986 and says uh, uh, he had just gotten, and I knew Terry as a baseball writer, uh, but now he's covering uh, the Cavaliers for the first year for the Akron Beacon Journal. And he's got this idea of, he thinks we can do a basketball book similar mm. to, we're going to, and I don't call it steal, we are going to appropriate Dan, right. Daniel Oakland's idea. Hey, homage. And I was, yeah, and I was not, you know, a little wary. I won't say skeptical. Todd, it's a different sport. You know, it, it, it's more fluid. You think we can do this? And he talked me into it. And so he wanted the Celtics because they were the defending champion and they were the haunted, haunted Boston Celtics. And he had a he had an interesting young Cleveland team, which had a great rookie crop of, of Brad Darty and Ron Harper and and uh, Hot Rod Williams, and a, and, a, and a fine young player in Mark Price, and a new coach, uh, a veteran uh, of great stature, Lenny Wilkins. And and he talked Lenny into the idea of the idea would be that we would uh, go to these Celtic Cavalier games with insider access, if you will, be in a locker room before the game uh, and 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 watch the game on tape afterward with them and 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 so uh, I, I I signed up and the game that we picked the first game we picked was January sixteenth, nineteen eighty seven, Cavaliers at Boston, and we hit the jackpot. We got an overtime game. Uh, we had all kinds of machinations, and start, including the, before the game even started, the, uh, the Cavaliers needed to sign a player, and they signed Craig Elo, and, he, and uh, Terry was able to <clears throat> have all the front office machinations of how you sign a player, and, and then he wound up playing a prominent role in the game that night, first night. And he was talking to the trainer who hated the Celtics, and it was really funny. And, uh, and uh, so we each were in the locker room. I was in Casey Jones, let me in the locker room for the pregame talk. And, um, and we have a, oh, and then we have controversy. We have a rookie referee named, uh, a referee, and, and we have the great Earl Strom, one of the great referees of all time, uh, a, a very strong-minded veteran. And there's a controversial traveling call made in the basket negated, all this stuff. Well, the Celtics win the game in overtime. It's a great game. And uh, we got that game to work with. And yeah. uh, so that was a that turned out to be a fun project. I actually enjoyed writing that book with with Terry. Rob Nyer actually just wrote a book called Powerball that was kind of the same idea. Did you read it? It was essentially uh, analyzing the modern game of baseball, but using one game. Uh, I have not seen it, but I would love yeah. to read it. 
yeah, it sounds like he was also paying homage to that original. Yeah, um, but all, it all goes back to Daniel Hillcrest. Yeah. And that, who, by the way, for people who know, who was, was on the ground floor of, of uh, rotisserie baseball. The fa- right. He was on that, the, right. the, the famous, uh, the, all the fantasy, it all stems from he and his friends at the, at the La, La Rotisserie in New York City, which is the name of the restaurant where they concocted this idea of fantasy baseball. Yeah. Um, your memory is impeccable, and I find that with people who have been reporting for a long time, especially those in the beat capacity, that seems to be a through line. I, I noticed it with Tim Kirkshin and, and you uh, and so many others. It's something that I struggle with, right? I've been to all these games. I can't tell you the date, and I can't always remember exactly what happened. Uh, that seems to be an integral part of your success. Is that something that you have in other parts of your life, or is it only with sports? No, I I think it, it it's most predominantly manifests itself in sports, uh, without question. And I'm grateful to have it because I believe me, I have uh, very very skewed uh, skills. Uh, you know, the <laughs> left side right side brain thing. Uh, I have zero mechanical aptitude. I have <laughs> common sense problems in many other areas, but all this other stuff I do retain his historical dates. Uh, music, you know, where I was when certain song came on kind right. of thing. Uh, very big on that. I, I think about that all the time, stuff like that. I, I associate uh, moments in my life with, with music, uh, which is my other Me great too. passion. Me too, a lot, as yeah. A sports. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm very fortunate uh, in that regard. It, it does help, you know, your writing. It helps. Uh, obviously, it's. Uh, I think it's part of the package for me that, that I'm very grateful that I was given. I don't know if you ever had to re- read Proust and uh, the idea of biting this Madeleine cake brings him back to childhood. I feel like that, for many people, is musical, right? As soon as you oh. hear something, you're immediately brought back somewhere. My brain works like that. It's just it's the numbers of dates and the numbers of, of games that uh, that tends to fail me. I might be even more left-sided than Yeah, I can tell you what the number one song was when I was driving down to the 1967 <laughs> Eastern Regionals in College Park, Maryland. It was Jimmy Mack by Martha and the Vandellas, and, and you know, a lot of this stuff, that stuff just sticks in my head very yeah. easily. I know the number one song when I became, I was a freshman at BC, that orientation week was If I Fell, the Beatles. Hmm. So, I mean, I can go on and on with that stuff. I love that. Um, so you spend 44 years at the Globe doing not only writing, but also all sorts of radio and television. A few misspeaks, a few errors, a couple that led to punishments or suspensions or, or people wagging a finger <clears throat> at you. It's a business that involves a lot of words, a lot of takes, a lot of off-the-cuff sort of extemporaneous opinions and thoughts, and it's something you're super passionate about. So it's sort of inevitable that this would happen without digging up any bad memories. Is there something that you have distance from now looking back on that long of a career that you regret or that you say, oh, that punishment was warranted or maybe my opinion mm-hmm. has changed now? No, without question. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's the... It's the Germanic kid thing, and and uh, oh, yeah. Well, it is, and here's what happened. And uh, I was a regular participant on a fri- on a Sunday night weekend wrap up show uh, with Bob Lobel, an old friend and great sportscaster for Channel Four in Boston, and we're talking about the upcoming series between the Celtics and the Nets. The second year in a row they would be playing in the in the uh, playoffs. And the subject of Jemima Kidd came up, and of course she had become prominent the year before for bringing her young son TJ to the game, a very cute, precocious kid, and uh, getting lots of camera time, lots and lots and lots and lots of camera time. And um, the topic came up, and uh, I said uh, something. I said how I just thought she was uh, an exhibitionist. Uh, I don't know if I use that word, but and she was using the kid as a prop. I did say right. that. I'm tired of her using this kid as a prop. Uh, and um, I went on to say, I'd like to smack her. And Lobel looks at me, and, and he knows right away, this is, uh, this, this, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my foot on the third rail. And uh, he's basically giving me a chance to recant immediately. And I do not take that opportunity. Uh, I, I doubled down. I said, you know, I said this last year, and I, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so it's out there. We go the next day to New Jersey. I'm at the shoot-around, and all hell is breaking loose. They picked up on this immediately in New York, and uh, the Post has got it that Bob Ryan said this on the air right. uh, about Germana Kid. And, of course, it was a throwaway line. It was hyperbole, obviously, you know. Okay, but, you know, now I get a phone call 
summoning me back to the globe. Toot sweet, on the fly, get home. And I get called into an office uh, with three ed- four editors, uh, and I am and the, the, the Marty Barron, the famous Marty Barron, who uh, who is now the editor of the Washington Post, and with whom I had you know a good relationship, um, adjudicates that I will be suspended uh, for a month uh, without pay. And I figured that was we were owned by the New York Times then. And I figured it was overkill. It was overkill. And it was two weeks for the Globe. I figured it two weeks for what I said, as I said, for West 43rd Street, which is where the Times offices were then. They're, now, they're no longer there. They're on 8th Avenue. Well, of course, the long and the short of it is that it was total hyperbole. And the, the biggest mistake, I, uh, the, 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 the dumb thing I hadn't thought of is that he had actually had hit her. So, yeah. you know, yeah. at one point. And yeah. uh, so... You know, the fact that it was hyperbole was, was – so I have to issue the pro forma apology, which I do, and I, and I take my medicine. I stay out a month, and it was a painful thing because uh, not only do I lose all my, my, my salary for a month on the Globe, I also no, – no TV, and I was doing three TV things on ESPN right. then, and no radio and uh, no speaking. And I, it all, and turned out to be more of a $23,000 hit uh, for wow. me. Wow. Yeah, it was, a bad, it was a bad month to have it happen. Right. So – well, Here's the most gratifying thing. One gratifying yeah. thing. I like to think I always had excellent relationships with the females in the business. And I can't say all because that would be an exaggeration and I cannot prove it. But a number of females with whom I had, uh, I would call myself friends in the business, uh, came to my defense and said, we know, the, we know, you know, too much saying, we know Bob Ryan, uh, you know, he certainly doesn't mean it. And I think secondarily, uh, some of them, you know, Felt that she was this way. The, the lady in question was not the most popular subject on, on right. their agenda either. So I think that. But my, I was very gratifying that just the um, uh, response and the support right. I got from the female sports writing community. That it didn't speak to a larger, uh, you know, kind of person you are was just was just an, an offhand comment. Yeah. You know. So oh, right. I got to give you the postscript. There was a funny post. There was actually a funny postscript, Sarah. Within a few weeks of it, or maybe a week even. Doris from uh, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, uh, yeah. Um, the mother who won the Emmys. Um, yep, it's Doris Roberts. Doris Roberts is in town in Boston, and she is uh, giving an interview. And at this point in time, it's in between seasons at Everyone Loves Raymond, and Ray uh, Romano had not yet decided whether or not he would come back and that, and that the show would continue. And she said how much she wanted the show to continue. She said, I think I, I'd like to smack him. <laughs> she said that. <laughs> you know, as, every bit the same amount of hyperbole as my line, but, you know, what are you going to do, you know? But I, 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 uh, I paid the price for that, yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, and, and yeah, I, I totally regret it. And the thing is, Bob Lobel threw me the tube, and I, and I didn't take it. And right. so, I, I, so, and that's it. I have only myself to blame. You know, right. no, well, no and, and Charles Barkley anybody. just said he'd like to punch Drake. So it's all about the context, I suppose. Who yeah, you're talking but, about in their history, of course. But that's matters. by far the most, the only yeah. thing that I, you know, the one thing that I totally regret. I, you know, it, it was stupid and and, and thoughtless, and, so, and I, I paid a price for it, and, uh, and that's that. You're at the Boston Globe for 44 years. You decide in 2012, after the Olympics, you're going to retire from writing your regular column. And you implied and, and talked about on some podcasts and in some interviews with people that the game had sort of passed you by, that things had changed enough that you didn't feel you were connecting with the, the reader and that the demands of the job didn't fit you anymore. Can you speak to that a little bit? Was it something yeah, that you uh, fought or uh, did you just feel it and decide, OK, that's it? Or did you fight it for a number of years? No, it, 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 it was it was somewhat gradual. Um, I just felt that, uh, and, and boy, was I right, you know, because it's accelerated, the, pro- the whole thing's accelerated, naturally. Um, to, to, to demand social media was starting to make itself known, and, 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 uh, and, and suddenly everybody could get into the act kind of thing, and that was starting to, you know, that, that was a new phenomenon that you had to deal with in a way. Um, and um, um, just the, 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 the barriers, I was resentful and angry about the fact that the, uh, we had lost our, our, our staff. We, we were not being respected. We being the print. The print media was no longer respecting. They were taking away our court seats, 
you couldn't really actually see the game the way you, you should be able to see the game, uh, you know, uh, at all. And that's a fact. And part of the whole thing, we talked earlier about how I would have these conversations with referees. I was always uh, big on audio. Audio part of the game was I could bring I, – I, you can't quantify it, but I can tell you right now, I would not have had the quality of game stories that I had. And I'm putting my game stories up quite frankly, in all total immodesty with anyone who's ever written in the NBA, uh, I would, uh, that, and I think that I needed to have all the senses come into play. I needed to be able to hear things right. um, as well as, as, as see things and feel things. And you can't hear or feel if you're sitting up in the stands. You need to be at courtside. That's where we belong, and we will always belong there, and now we are no longer there. I, I hated that. I, couldn't, I, I didn't want any more part of that. If that alone was enough to get me out, and 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 but the total lack of respect for the print media, it's uh, uh, and which is persist and will never ch- turn around. Um, you know, I said I, forty four years was enough, right. and uh, so well, there you go. And, and you uh, said sp- uh, I had no regrets about it. I, I know. Yeah. I did. And then of course the game has changed. That that the hostile takeover of the three point shot has completely distorted <laughs> the game of basketball. Completely distorted it. It is what it is. The Warriors play it better than anyone's ever played it. It's not going to go back. People, other than I'm, I'm in the total minority that think the three point shot is a, is a, a negative. It's an abomination. It's the worst thing that happened to game in my lifetime. Should they move the line back, the three point line, no, to make it more it, difficult it, of a shot? Well, you know what? Uh, it, there'll be more. Uh, I don't know if there'll be more Curry's coming. I shouldn't say that. But more and more people are going to try to be Curry and going to try to shoot from that distance. We've already seen Damian Lillard make a step into a casual 37-foot game winner right. this year <laughs> you know, that he didn't have to take. Unlike if you were shooting from 37 feet not too, too long ago, it was because you had to do so, not because you wanted to do so. But anyway, Curry takes shoots from 35 because he wants to do. Um, yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. You know what, Sarah? The four is coming. You know right. it, and I know it, and, and that's really going to make me puke. <laughs> One of the things you said on your way out or as you were talking about your retirement, uh, you said, how do you explain to Stephen A. Smith that he has no idea of the game and how much fun it was? He thinks he knows everything, but he'll never know what I know about the Celtics. What did you well, mean by that? And was it specific to him or just people oh, yeah, of this no, generation? I just, uh, no, I text him because he's such a prominent figure and somebody right. that, by the way, I, I'm, I have a good relationship with. I, I, uh, but I mean, his level of relationship and yeah he's got the Rolodex he's, he can yeah, he's, he's friends with all I guess he's friends with all these guys and I may have been wrong he may have been the exception maybe he's the exception and maybe he's the guy that knows how to negotiate this 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 world uh, in a way that uh, I as, as I knew how to negotiate my world I may have been wrong about that time for a quick break and then more that's what she said with Sarah Spain Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tiso's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. The Tiso Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. While the Tiso PR100 family of watches brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that's bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tiso at us.tsoshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores nationwide. That's what she said. All right, we're going to do a speed round quickly. All-time favorite Boston athlete to cover. Dave Cowens. Dave Cowens was the unique combination of Hall of Fame ability, electrifying style, and he was the most uh, intellectually curious athlete I ever dealt with. Not to say he was a raging intellectual, but he had an innate curiosity about life, uh, that transcended basketball, and it was fun to be around, and, and, and uh, there was never, from in my experience, anybody like him. Your least favorite Boston athlete to cover? To cover? Well, I didn't have to do it very much, but it would probably be Sidney Wicks. Well, at least I, I do have the satisfaction when I ran into him after he left Boston a year later, and he said that I ran him out of Boston, and I said, Sidney, <laughs> if I thought I had the power, I would have done it sooner. So <laughs> once in a while, you, you, you do come up with the right line. Uh, your all-time favorite coach to cover? Oh, boy. Um, I guess Doc, uh, I would say. Uh, although I had, a nice, you know, I had a good relationship with Bill Fitch. A lot of people didn't, but I did. But, but Doc Rivers, um, everything about him, uh, uh, gracious guy. Uh, uh, he gets it. He gets us. He had respect for us, the media. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I consider myself... Uh, you know, to be a good acquaintance, I wouldn't digni- I wouldn't uh, go overboard and say that we're that that I could claim to be you know one of his best friends or anything. But I think that uh, we're, we're we're quite compatible, and I'm, I'm I'm happy. I still maintain a relationship with him. Yes. Least favorite coach to cover. Um, least favorite coach to cover. You know, 
he's such a good guy, but he was an exasperating coach to cover. It was Casey Jones in, in, in ways because he, there was never anybody like him. He, 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 had, he was all about feel and, and less about empirical evidence and, and, and detail than any coach I ever covered in any sport. I mean, I, I used to say that if you put a, uh, uh, every coach in the league and, and put a yellow legal pad in front of them and said, in the next minute, I want you just to name as many players in this league as you can, he would finish last. <laughs> uh, the thing you wish you had covered, or maybe even would still like to. This is, you know what? College Baseball World Series. And, huh. and it came up against the NBA Finals always, same time. Uh, I, I, I would like to... And in Rosenblatt Stadium, and and it had to have, would have had to have been when they were playing in that ball. There's something about I I think I would have enjoyed that. I love baseball so much, and and I think that uh, uh, that's the one event uh, that I uh, and, and, and domestically, internationally, I would just like to have gone to, or would still like to go to a um, you know big um, international soccer match, you know, right. between heated rivals, you know, with uh, and I don't care whether it's. Uh, Juventus and, and AC Milan, or, or whether it's uh, Bar- Barca and Real, or whether it's uh, you know uh, the Celtic and Ranger. Although I, uh, maybe you got to wear a bulletproof vest for that one. But anyway, <laughs> that. But I. But I would say the College Baseball World Series. You're married 50 years. What's the secret? I, I don't know how other people who aren't mar- have these mixed marriages where, the, where, where the, the, the husband's a sports writer and the wife knows nothing about sports. Right. Uh, but uh, first of all, I don't understand how they get along at all I, I, because <laughs> so much of what you do, is got, she's got to have a feel for appreciation for what you do. Look, it's always uh, what's the word compromise. You know, you, 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 you know, know when, to, when, when to say it's your turn and we know when to say uh, if, it, if this matters more to you than it does to me, then, then, I, then that's fine. Um, I, I think that's ultimately what it, what, what, what's the key. It's time for the Spanish Inquisition, which is brought to you by Tissot. Tissot, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tissotshop.com. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, you're stuck on a desert island. You only have one album. What is it? Uh, Sinatra at the Sands. Ooh, good one. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Uh, oh boy, habit, habit or quality. Uh, reading, reading. I mean, reading. I mean, I, I, I preach reading, 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 reading. Reading is the key. Reading, reading. I like that. Uh, number three, what do you consider your biggest failure? Uh, oh, I wanted, always talked about but never did become uh, more knowledgeable about hockey. I, I always said I wanted to go to training camp and spend, uh, immerse myself for three weeks with hockey people and get hockey, 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 so I can figure this game out faster and, 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 and anticipate things and learn more about it. I do not have, I had to learn that game from the outside in, and, as a, in a sense, and, and uh, I, I never did it. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Uh, at childhood, uh, did we get into fist fights? No, not since... Not since single-digit age, I wouldn't think. You know, I was in a neighborhood. We threw rocks. It was, we threw, yeah, it was. Like I know, I know, but really, we threw rocks, and, oh, and rocks. I, remember, I threw rock once at Patty McStravick, and I, 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 oh, you can't throw it her. Although, she, although she was a better ball player than the rest of us, but uh, <laughs> I never forget. I, I did know that was a, that was a no-no. Number five. If you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Uh. Oh, oh, boy. Um, um, Alistair Cook. Hmm. Why so? Because he was brilliant in so many ways. Not only did he have, uh, uh, you know, just marvelous uh, intuition, he, he was a great writer. He was a great, uh, and he loved music, loved jazz, and, he, and, and uh, um, I just think he was urbane, and, and I just think he knew how to get the most out of life. I always said in my next life I want to be Alistair Cook. <laughs> Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, well, I wasn't, I, I, I had an incident that wasn't, but I didn't really feel embarrassed, uh, uh, but it was a little uh, unnerving at the time when uh, I had a big blow up with Doug Griffin in the Red Sox clubhouse and Dwight Evans comes out and, and uh, he's also unhappy and he spits on the floor and he says, Phew! he says, I don't want you writing anything about me, good or bad. <laughs> that was pretty funny. And, of course, I want to patch it up with both of them because that's the way those things always work out. Yeah. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? 
Um, if I had it all over again, I, I would have liked to have had a stronger body to play uh, baseball, to, uh, to, uh, to play everything. I, I never, I don't know, I just didn't naturally grow into the, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, physical being that, that would enable me to be a better athlete. As much as I love sports, I, I, I took it as far as I could at my prep school basketball level and my pickup basketball level, and I, but uh, I would have liked to have uh, done better with it. Yeah. Number eight, if you could play commissioner for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society has to adhere to? Uh, uh, boy, that's a good one. Um, you know, what I really truly believe what we need, which is not particularly, it's not practical, you, we can only imagine the utter insolvable, unresolvable chaos that would ensue. But what this country needs is a new constitutional convention to reflect the fact that we're living in the 21st century and not the 18th century. There and that's go. what our Constitution reflects, the 18th century, not the 21st century. But can you imagine if we ever tried to have a constitutional convention now, how we, if, that we could ever come to any reasonable kind of compromise? You, know, you have with, taken with the, the uh, commissioner no. for a day position to a higher level than anyone before you, and I appreciate that. You are you want, in wanting to enact a new Constitution. Uh, you've, really, you've really taken it to the highest level possible, and that is admirable. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, well, I'll tell you what, I said, and it's a combination of dumb things, too. I once was driving to a game over a mountain between North Carolina and Tennessee to get to Johnson City, Tennessee, to East Tennessee, when a sudden snow squall came up, blinding whiteout, and I'm at this top, on this mountain, this little mountain, and I'm thinking, of all the dumb things I've done, this is by far the dumbest uh, to try to go over this mountain. And uh, and then the thing ended. I, I pulled over and sat there, and suddenly it ended about 10 minutes later. Those 10 minutes, I'm thinking, you know, what am I doing here? How am I yeah. going to get out of this? What's, yes, that's the most I've ever. I drove through four tornado warnings yesterday that said seat cover immediately and we had three dogs with us and we oh, were like ah, oh. we'll just keep driving and see what happens and we made it out the other end but everybody well, pulled over to the side of the road or under the overpasses and we were like ah we'll just nothing's gonna clear up <laughs> it oh, all worked God. out um number 10 what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you enthusiastic uh enthusiastic funny and um, impulsive, maybe. Uh, okay. Sometimes. All right. That? I'll take it. Uh, okay. And finally, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast? You know, I told you, my favorite athlete, uh, you know, Cowens would be fun. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, I'll go through you to get to him, of course. No, I can so get that. you to him. All right. Okay. Thanks, Bob. This was really, I love talking to you. This was great. Well, I appreciate that you're having me. It was a, it's fun because you know you, you realize you, you got me talking about my favorite subject so you know yeah well of course that's 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 how we get everybody <laughs> and i won't here. deny that oh, oh you know what you know i gotta put this thing about I, I yes i have egomania i'm sure that some would say egomaniac and i i, I wouldn't <laughs> you know but uh, but i like to think uh it's more like realist i always yeah. kid my wife i would say you know i always come home like i come home from um around the horn and i'll say and I, I, if I didn't win, I'll say, I got robbed. I was robbed. And she said, you always say that. And I said, no, I tell you, because I'll come home and I say, oh, not today. I didn't have it. You know, I, I, I definitely got what I deserved today. But, That's funny. You know, when, when I, but she'll always say, you, you always say that. No, I don't always say that. I think I'm very realistic. Damn it. <laughs> uh, I just say it's rigged. When I don't win, it's rigged, of course. <laughs> that, that's, that's what it's got to be. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. And today, it's assholes who talk during speeches at charity events and weddings. Now, let's start with charity fundraisers and galas. You guys have been to plenty of these things. I've been to a ton of these things. You get all dressed up. You go to a nice venue. You get liquored up on the open bar, eat a half dozen crab cake appetizers, dance to a cover band, blow a bunch of money you meant for your kid's birthday present on a couple signed memorabilia items in the silent auction. And you go home feeling great about yourself for supporting a cause, right? Well, somewhere in the middle of that, you probably didn't notice as you were stuffing your face and downing drinks that somebody who spends his or her life devoted to the cause that you were supporting, what was it again? You can barely remember, asked you for 15 to 20 goddamn minutes to hear about the kids getting new hearts or homes or hearing aids or whatever it is, and you couldn't be bothered to stop ordering your 20th Chardonnay or blabbing to your friend about whatever plans you have for your upcoming Memorial Day barbecue. Now, as someone who has actually hosted 
a dozen or so of these things, if not more. I've been the one up there trying to get you assholes to shut up so I can just get a tiny moment of silence for a little kid who's terrified out of her mind and yet still 1,000 times braver than you'll ever be, who's going to come on stage and perform a poem about gun violence in her community or a family member who was lost or the education that she seeks to get that she needs funding for. So shut up! Just shut up for one second. You can get back to your drinking in like 10 minutes. Just for one minute, listen to the actual cause that you're there for. One of the worst examples I was ever at was when my husband and I went to a friend's school church fundraiser. This is a Catholic school. And a priest was up there talking about the fundraising. I'm not religious. I don't have any kids. I don't know anything about this school. And I was quietly and respectfully listening to this priest talk about what he was talking about. And every other table in the room is full of jackass parents who actually have kids that go there and are presumably religious in some way. And they are just blasting right through this priest's speech. You people are seriously the worst. And the same goes for weddings. Because you jackasses that talk over parents' speeches, I swear one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. In fact, at my own wedding, we assigned shushers at various tables throughout the room, and we warned them in advance, if anyone tries to talk while our parents are speaking, you shush them. We will not have our parents disrespected in the brief moment of time that they will be addressing all the people that we most love in our lives. You are at the biggest, greatest moment of someone's life, and you can't shut up for four minutes to hear... Her dad blubber on about his little girl that he used to play catch with in the backyard, being all grown up now and married. You can't stop buttering your stupid roll and looking for the table wine for one minute so that grandma, who's 95 years old, can tell a completely incoherent story that has no beginning, middle, or end, but could be one of the last moments that the groom ever has with her. You're the worst. You are the absolute worst. Just think about someone else for one second of your life and shut your trap. Okay? All right. Feel good about what we accomplished here. Shut up. Put your Zinfandel down and listen to the reason that you're at this fundraiser slash gala slash wedding. There. I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Leave the dilemma in your review and maybe I'll fix it on a future podcast. Listener Dilemmas are brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.